Hey, this is Dan Wunderlich from Defining Grace, and welcome to Art of the Sermon, a show for preachers, teachers, and communicators. Our guest today is Reverend Narcy Jeter. She's the lead pastor at Point Hope United Methodist Church in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. She's also a great friend and colleague of mine, as I served under her while she was the executive director and campus minister at the Gator Wesley Foundation in Gainesville, Florida. Now, today's conversation with Narcy is a little bit different than some of the other interviews we've had on this program, as she's here today to share with us a little bit of her story and how it relates to ministry and preaching. And so here it is, my interview with Narcy Jeter. Well, my guest today is a great friend and colleague of mine, Reverend Narcy Jeter. She's currently the lead pastor at Point Hope United Methodist Church in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina, but previously I served under her while she was the executive director and campus minister at the Gator Wesley Foundation in Gainesville, Florida, uh, calling in from a Starbucks parking lot in Mount Pleasant, South Carolina. How are you today, Narcy? Great. Thank you so much for being with us today. And uh, in the intro of the show, I shared that this conversation is going to be a little bit different than others because you're here to share your story rather than sort of talk conceptually about preaching. But let's start the way we always start. Uh, For those who don't know you as well as I am, can you share a little bit about yourself as well as your ministry and its context? Yes. I grew up as a United Methodist preacher's kid, and we moved all over the state of South Carolina. Um, I went to Winthrop University to be a high school English teacher like Anne Shirley from the Anne Green Gables book. And I always wanted to be a high school English teacher. Um, but when I was in campus ministry, it pairs social justice with meaningful worship experiences. And I felt called in a campus ministry to be a campus minister and create that environment, that safe space, that community for students. And so I went to Candler School of Theology Married my husband, Mike, first. Um, We'll celebrate 15 years in May. And um, while we're in Candler, um, Mike was an elementary music teacher and played with a rock band made up of my seminary classmates. Um, (laughs) And so, hey. But after serving um, with Emory Religious Life for two years before graduating, I graduated and served part-time as campus minister for Emory-Wesley Fellowship, and then part-time with Religious Life. My primary responsibility with Religious Life was doing this interreligious apartment um, on the Claremont campus, hospitality, meaningful interaction, and deep conversation. And so I was tasked with creating this safe space, creating this common table where real dialogue happened. And That is something that I've taken with me throughout my entire ministry is the fact that when people get to know each other, the real talk happens. When Mm. people get to know each other, the walls come tumbling down. I had conversations about forgiveness and what do Christians mean by forgiveness? Like, what does it mean that Jesus forgives you? And so non-Christians, like devout Jews, devout Muslims, devout Hindus, asking that question puts you on the spot in a different way than debating it in a seminary classroom. Absolutely. Exactly. So then I went to Winthrop Wesley, my alma mater, for six years, and then I came to Gary Wesley, and the rest is history. Um, Four years, and um, I loved it, and I loved campus ministry. But now I'm in Mount Pleasant at Point Hope. This is the one of the fastest growing areas in the state. 
and I am right on near the beach, 20 minutes away and 20 minutes from downtown Charleston and all the history there. And so we've loved experiencing what Charleston has to offer and the Charleston area. That's great. I I know you miss Gainesville, but it is the furthest point from water in the state of Florida. So it's got to be nice to be back near the water. Exactly. And and I uh, have always admired your desire to get deeper in conversations and get real in conversations. And like you said, when you are asked these questions by people that are coming from a different starting point or a different foundation or have a different lens on life, it's it's a very different conversation than in the seminary classroom or even you know right. the college room at a campus ministry. And, exactly. And I think it's such a valuable skill for us as pastors to try to acquire and use, especially right now the climate in our country. Do you have any exactly? Do you have any, uh, before we jump into your story, do you have any just like kind of quick tips off the top of your head that you use to, to connect with folks that come from a different perspective? Um, meet them where they are get to know them and listen to them. Like know that you talk more than you listen when mm. you're explaining something, encourage them and actively listen to them. And, um, and if you don't get to know them besides, Hey, how are you? You missed out on the meaningful interaction that is supposed to be the church. We're supposed to be a body of believers. We're supposed to be a community of believers. We're supposed to weep and mourn together, and we're supposed to celebrate together. And so if you don't get that, you're missing out on the wonderful ways that Christ can work through your community to support you. Well, in the spirit of uh, deep conversation and getting to know each other, when you are asked to tell the story of what you have uh, gone through over the last couple of years and really over the last decade, where do you start your story? So I started at the Student Forum in Winchester, Virginia. Um, so I have had fibromyalgia since 2004. While I was at Candler, I was diagnosed at Emory. So I thought this was merely fibromyalgia pain. I get more pain when I get infections. And so I was at um, on the planning team at Student Forum on the hospitality team, and we were doing this thing uh, for campus ministers while their students were in session. And so I was in charge of small groups at that time, and I was like, I'm not feeling very well. I'm going to skip lunch. And if you know me, like you do, (laughs) I never skip meals. That's true. Like, I'm always hungry and always have snacks around me and candy around me. And so I came back and did the small group thing at 3 o'clock in the afternoon. And I went back because I was not feeling well. And somehow, during the night, I walk and talk in my sleep and the beds were lofted and dreamed that I was drowning, then fell out of the bed, woke up on the ground. And when I looked in the mirror, like my head was busted open. And, and I remembered because I had stopped the hospitality suite. I remembered a thing of Tylenol being in there. Mm. And so I went downstairs, some campus ministry friends were in the lobby. It was late in the evening, and I was, like, playing it off. I fell out of bed, going down here to get Tylenol, but one of them asked what the handprint on my arm was because he thought had I had gotten attacked. Mm. And so 
I looked at it and I'm like, well, I dreamed I was drowning. And so I may have done that to myself. Let me just sleep it off. But he in fact called campus police as I was going upstairs. I had no idea. But then I called my mom. She prayed for me. And she, as she prayed, guardian angels to be at my door, the campus police knocked. <laughs> and campus police checked me out. And they said, do you want us to call the EMS? And I was driving eight hours back to Rock Hill, South Carolina the next day. And so I said, well, EMS can check me out. And EMS checked me out and said I was fine. Mm. And I said, well, take me in the ambulance. They checked me out, and I was admitted to the hospital, the emergency room, and I tested positive for a seizure, and I tested positive for a mask in the CT scan. And it's not like... McDreamy. <laughs> My neurosurgeon was not McDreamy. Yeah. Um, but the neurologist said, you have a brain tumor. Mm. And um, so I was 30 at the time. I was, my son will turn, would turn three in a week. And my daughter was one. Um, and so they've never known me without the surgeries. But a friend drove me to Rock Hill and the next week, and it turned three, the next week I had the surgery, had my first surgery. Mm. And I had no deficit at that time. It was a miracle. I had no deficits. But they said they did not get all of it because it was on the motor cortex. Mm. And so fast forward, fast forward, fast forward. In 2013, I had the second surgery, and I did have significant deficits then. We had moved to Gainesville the year before, and um, this was a teaching hospital. And so Dr. Friedman said he could get it all, and no mention of loss of hand, no mention of any kind of deficit. I should have asked him more questions, (laughs) apparently. And so I scheduled a wedding three weeks later that you helped with. That's right. No thought of any kind of deficit, any kind of anything. But then I came out of the surgery and I lost my ability to to speak. I lost my right arm motion. My right hand is was limp. And they gave me a pen and a paper with my left hand and I can only draw circles. That was devastating. Um, I mean, it was devastating because I lost my ability to communicate in one cell swoop. My right hand, I'm right-handed. My ability to order words was gone. I mean, I texted my husband three weeks later and said, The quickness with which I speak comes back, question mark. (laughs) And it took me 20 minutes to text that. Yeah. I mean, if you remember that summer, I was texting from communication. And I mean, I remember having a staff meeting with you and Pam, the office manager at the time. And I said maybe two or three words. Um, It was so frustrating 
to not be able to speak when you're a pastor and not being able to type when you're a pastor and not being able to write. I butchered the signature on Serena and Brandon's wedding license (laughs) because I couldn't write. Right, right. So six months of physical, occupational, speech therapy, six months of months of chemo, 30 treatments of radiation. One time the speech therapist, he would make me make sentences out of picture books. Mm. <sighs> <laughs> and he it. would have me, I know, he would have me read paragraphs of news articles. Edward Snowden became my BFF that summer because he was all over the news. Yeah. And I was like, you better be glad that you're a nice man. <laughs> and I don't want to punch you. Yeah. But I remember losing my temper one time and he said, Narcy, your brain will rewire itself to communicate. I work with stroke victims and brain damaged patients and their ability to speak is non-existent. Your brain will rewire itself. Mm. I mean, after the surgery, the doctor told me and Mike that I may never get the ability to speak again, but so-so. And I said, I don't know how I said this. I said in my mind, like, will helping, like, will stinging along to the radio help? And she was like, no. But I promise you that it helps. Yeah. I mean, like, the brain is a very tricky thing, and I don't pretend to understand it, but anything helps. Any kind of memory helps. And so that summer, I preached any sermon that I had a manuscript for. Yeah. <laughs> and because I could read. Right. That was the amazing thing about uh, at that point in time, that extemporaneous speech was a challenge. I remember those staff meetings where you like had your phone to text and then you had like a little whiteboard or a pad of paper. And it was mm-hmm. pretty much like, let's stick to yes or no questions because exactly. you know that's what you could get out. Um, but you were able to read sermons during that time. Um, mm-hmm. I also remember, and, and correct me if I'm recalling wrong, there were things like uh, some of some of the hymns or the doxology or even the the communion liturgy things that you had essentially memorized, memorized, uh, and so they they weren't extemporaneous, so to speak. But you also didn't right. necessarily need to read them. It, it was this crazy like pathway of your brain that hadn't been affected by the surgery. Right. What what was that like for you? Surreal, strange. I didn't know. Like I still don't know when I say the Lord's Prayer and I don't read it if I'm going to mess up a word, mm-hmm. like I am still freaked out that I will lose words. When I attempt to extemporaneously preach, I'm still floundering. And my husband says, I pause and close friends say I pause and everybody pauses. But that type of fear, Ooh, I mean, I don't like to feel helpless. None of us do. Right. And I am, Mostly a control freak. Many of us pastors are. And it definitely was a challenge. 
and still is a challenge. My dad had a TIA in November, and he lost the ability to speak for 20 minutes. And he said to me at the clergy orders meeting, I now know what you feel like. Mm. And we both were crying. Um, because it's a helpless feeling when you can understand and process. Like I knew what the nurses were telling me. I just had no ability to speak and acknowledge that. Yeah. Um, but I, I was nodding to everything. And so, I mean, even that was awful because I was saying yes to everything and couldn't do my head not yes. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I mean, like, it's crazy. Yeah. But, I mean, I mostly preach, like, I used to only use notes. Well, in seminary, I use manuscripts when I preached in Candler Chapel and Glen Memorial, and um, I would use manuscripts. But as I got into ministry, I would use mostly notes, and I now preach with a manuscript always. And my parishioners say, um, anytime that I go off script, I'm more powerful, mm. but I am afraid to go off script too much because I am very careful in my language. Yeah. Um, I don't want it to be a stumbling block for someone or not to say stuff the correct way or to offend someone. I mean, I may want to offend them, but <laughs> in the right way, in a, you know what in I the mean? way you plan, exactly. right? Yeah. In a helpful way, in a thinking about it way, in a continuing process way. And I don't want to use the wrong word in a sermon to have that lasting impact on a person because we're, we preach prophetically and personally, but we preach vulnerability, and our sermons carry weight. Like, who gets the chance to preach for 20 minutes every Sunday, 15, 10, 30, every Sunday, and people listen to them? Mm. I mean, who does that? Yeah, Who takes a, that time? Yeah, it's a very special responsibility. Yeah, I mean, it's a continual journey. One of the campus ministers in Jacksonville said to me that he had a student coming from his home church, and he said, Jordan, you know, is a science guy, is a double major in science, and he loves to hear you preach because you're courageous. You're mm. all out there. And science doesn't prepare him for resilience. That kept me going for a while. Like, I mean, God put in my path things that have kept me going and given me opportunities that have encouraged me. But sermons were a joy before. They're a joy sometimes now but it's more stress, joy. Yeah. Yeah, I wanted to ask you about that. As someone who 
was so gifted in preaching, still is so gifted in preaching, someone who, as we talked about at the beginning of, of this conversation, having conversations and getting real and connecting with people one-on-one uh, or one-to-many uh, in small groups and in mm-hmm. congregations is such a powerful part of your ministry, and it's a part of your calling. And then you go through this medical procedure that seems to take away the, a central yep. aspect of how you express your calling. Um, mm-hmm. did, did you wrestle with your calling at that point? Did you wrestle with your relationship with God? I would imagine it's impossible not to, but, but what was that period of time uh, like? Um, I have always had the sense since I was a little girl and, um, that God does not cause any bad situation to happen. It's a sin in the world that was released in the world with the fall of humanity. And um, our family has had many discussions about the theodicy of it all. Mm-hmm. Um, the theodicy that bad things seemingly happen to good people. And I know that God does not cause this. Why did God allow this to happen? Who knows? I mean, I have a parishioner who got MRI results yesterday and the tumor is growing. The tumor that we prayed will leave her body and it's given me ways to walk with those kinds of people because I know from which they speak. I know that they don't want to leave their husband. They don't want to leave their kids. They don't want to leave anyone. They don't, they're, body is doing something out of their control and it's given me many different ways to empathize and to hear them and to give them all the control that I have can have so they can tell their stories so they can share their stories. cancer patients it's important to give them control because they don't have control of the cancer and I believe wholeheartedly and the God works things for good for those who love God and God's been faithful. And now obviously, you know, not everyone, probably not even a a small percentage of folks that listen to this podcast will end up someday with a brain tumor that leads to surgery that takes away (laughs) their ability to speak. Exactly. But we all go through struggles in life. Um, We all go through health issues and and there's not a single person that I've, I've met that hasn't had a serious health issue either with themselves right. or with a close family member. Or there are times just in, in ministry where we get beat down by our our own standards for ourselves, or by the things that, you know, the, the devil says to us or the things that our own church members exactly. say to us that make us question our calling, question our gifts to preaching, leave us empty when we're looking for words. Um, oh, yeah. A, a, as someone that has has like sort of faced that precipice of, will I ever preach again? Can I ever preach again? What words of encouragement might you have to someone that feels that way, no matter the cause? Well, I'll answer the earlier question and then I'll answer that question because I do well one-on-one. Um, I may pause, I may lose some words in a long day of meetings. I may do hand motions and, they can figure it out um, because I'm great at charades now. <laughs> That's true. That's um, true. But 
on those dark nights of the soul, when I am devastated by what a prisoner said, when I'm devastated about not being able to communicate, when people bring up the health issues, um, I have to remember that God has called me, that the great God of the universe calls me, and I don't have to please anyone else but God. Mm. And all the haters out there drinking their hater aids <laughs> can go away. Yeah. yeah. Because God has placed me here mm. for such a time as this. And do what you can to get filled. I mean, abide in Christ. Take walks on the beach. If you don't have a beach nearby, take walks in the woods. Get yourself replenished because the church is not going to replenish you. Hear me now. You can be doing all the things for the glory of God and you can burn out. I mean, hardcore burnout. And so God does not want that for you. God wants you to have a full, abundant, and healthy life. Why do pastors think that doesn't apply to them? And we tell it to our people every Sunday or every Wednesday or every Tuesday. You're included in that calling. Amen. We take better care of our parishioners than we take care of ourselves. And that is a sin and a shame. And I am very guilty of it. <laughs> I am preaching to the choir. <laughs> right, right. I mean, but I need to hear this. You don't do any good for people when you're so burnt out that you barely can put one foot in the front of the other. And you don't want to get out of bed in the morning. You're no use. Well, you're sort of in use. You're sort of can limp along. Um, and fake it, but you can't fake it long enough unless you go to the source, Jesus. I never, before the surgery, before the second surgery, had an inkling of what depending on God was in actuality, because, I mean, I skated through life but I now know what dependence on God is because he provides my word. I use the gender pronoun he, and so that's why I write my sermons in manuscript form. <laughs> because I naturally talk in the he pronoun, um, and he will give you the strength. Yeah. And that's what I was telling the cancer patient yesterday. I know he's faithful, and I don't know why this happened like this. I don't know why God allowed this ha to happen, but he's going to be present with you. Jesus is going to be walking with you every step of the way. And I say over and over and over again, John Wesley's final word was, best of all, God is with us. Mm. Best of all, God is with us. And I believe wholeheartedly in that. 
Well, we really appreciate you sharing your story with us today. And before we move on to our general questions that we ask all of our guests, uh, can you give everybody sort of an update of, of how you're doing now? Obviously, you're you're extemporaneously speaking here on the podcast and you're doing a great job. So you've got a lot of that back. Where, where are you in your recovery process and, and how are you health-wise? So um, I am going to NUSC now. Dr. Stahl at the Cancer Center and University of Florida Great, 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 great. Um, I cannot say enough good things about that time. And um, I'm now at MUSD, um, where the only neuro-oncologists are in the state, and there are two. And um, I go back for a scan. I went for a scan in October, and I go back in March. I've been moved up to six months, and um, they have the only two test trials for my type of tumor here at NUSC. And so that gives me hope that if it does recur, we will have choices and plans of action. And um, that makes me feel better. But who knows, like, what the future holds. My parents have in their church a woman who is a 60-year survivor. And, hey... Why not me? That would get you to 90. I think that's, that's probably, exactly. that would hey, be pretty good. I mean, I don't know what the future holds. Right. Um, no one does. And we should all live like we're on fire for God and take care of our families and take care of our health and blah, 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 blah. Good. All right. Well, here's our set of questions that we ask all of our guests. The first one is, uh, what is one of your favorite and or most challenging preaching experiences? You can answer either or both. Mm. Challenging preaching experience would be the time I preached for next in the Ukraine when the first protester was shot Mm. the day that I arrived. And he happened to be from that city that I was preaching in. And there were pictures of him and lit candles all over the place. And to preach, I had already prepared the sermons, but I spent my off times rewriting the sermons. And to preach for a country at war, and that was after the surgery, that was after the radiation, <laughs> that was after the chemo. Yeah. And so to preach manuscripts, I hope that the translator translated it, it halfway well <laughs> or said something different because I didn't know what to say in that situation, except God is with us. Mm. And who have been some of the most impactful preachers or non-preacher communicators in your life and why? I would be remiss if I didn't say my father, um, he tells great stories and I would perk up as a child to hear his story. I would tune out when he talked but I would perk up the stories. Yeah. Um, and some of my favorite stories are some of the stories that I've shared with congregations. Barbara Bound Taylor, um, I had the chance to be with her and hear her preach. And then Bridget Young Ross, who I served with at Emory, is a powerful preacher. Nadia Balls Weber, who presented at our Denver UNC May conference in 2013, she is a powerful preacher. She, uses profanity that I like. I like that, but I don't ever use profanity in my sermons, but I admire that she does and she uses it appropriately. Um, and 
I'm saying all women preachers except dad. Huh. Hey, that's, okay. all, that's all good. That's all good. Uh, what uh, books or other resources have been uh, influential for you or things that you might recommend for listeners to check out? So text week, um, it has all the lectionary text, um, homiletics online. It gives great affirmations of faith and pastoral prayers and blah, 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 blah. If you want that sort of thing, um, my devotional book, The Sacred Ordinary Days, Liturgical Day Planner, has been very helpful to me this past semester as I've been going through it. The bound lectionary book, I keep it with me all the time, but I hate that it jumped to the common English version, <laughs> not the new revised version. Yeah. So, tomato, tomato. Um, and I use the notes on my Apple phone, iPhone, mm-hmm. yeah. to get quotes to, or things that strike me or to put in sermons later. That's great. And then finally, if there are folks out there that want to get in touch and say hi or follow your work, what's the best way for them to do that? So at Narcy Jeter um, on Twitter, Narcy Jeter on Facebook, um, NarcyJeter.com is my blog, which I created to assist me in 2010 when I first discovered the tumor. And that was a way to give people updates so that I wouldn't have to. I rarely edit my blog except for the sermons. So this is my, as Sarah Barry Ellis does, this is my song written out loud and know that they're going to be raw helped bits because I never edit like the health parts. I edit the sermon, yeah. but not the health part. Awesome. Well, Narcy, thank you so much for being with us today, taking the time and sharing your story. I really, really appreciate it. You're welcome. Thank you for having me. Thank you so much for joining me for this episode of Art of the Sermon. You can find show notes, including links to some of the things that we talked about at artofthesermon.com. As always, I would love to hear what you think about the show, and I want your input to be a part of the conversation. So you can connect with me through Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram, all at username Art of the Sermon. If you'd like to support the show, I would encourage you to subscribe to the podcast through iTunes, Google Play Music, or your favorite podcast app so that new episodes are downloaded as soon as they're live. And of course, in addition to sharing the show with your friends, the best way to help us out is to leave a review in the iTunes store. This lets iTunes know that you care about the show and want other people to find it. Thank you again so much for joining me, and I'll catch you next time on Art of the Sermon.